120 Outdoors is a monthly podcast that looks at the hunting and fishing opportunities we all have close to home. Join Chris DePaula and Don Klaus as they share personal stories, interesting facts, and interview unique outdoor personalities. This podcast will make you want to spend more time in the great outdoors. Hello and welcome to 120 Outdoors, where we talk about how to enjoy the hunting and fishing opportunities within 120 miles or 120 minutes of your home. Hi, my name is Chris DePaula, and I'm here with my co-host, Don Klaus. And today we have a great show planned for you. We're going to talk about our great lake, Lake Erie. Yeah, we're super fortunate to have have a great lake within our 120. Uh, it's part of the, the Great Lake system, which I'm fascinated with the whole great of the great lakes but uh we're fortunate to have one of the the truly great lakes in terms of fishing near us uh, lake erie is fantastic for for many species and uh arguably it's the best walleye lake in the world and i don't think you get too many arguments on that no that's for sure not now not the past couple of years that's for sure but lake erie uh has a a, a rich history of producing fish uh, it's a healthy body of water at this point in time. Uh, Chris and I don't know everything about it. And to address that, we have two special guests today. Both are from the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. First is Anne Marie Gorman. She's a fisheries biologist and she works out of the Fairport Harbor Station on Lake Erie. And also uh, we have Travis Hartman. He is the Lake Erie Program Administrator, and he works out of the Sandusky office. So we're going to hear a little bit about the, the lake, and we're going to hear a little bit about the fishing on the lake. We think you're going to learn something. I know we both sure did. So let's get started and uh, talk to Anne Marie. Okay, Anne Marie, thank you very much uh, for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend time with Dawn and I today, talking a little bit about our great lake, Lake Erie. Um, of course, you're welcome. Thank yes, you. thank you again. And how about the fishing? What's the outlook for 2020? Not only for the, the, the walleye fishery, but for the overall lake itself. How's it look for 2020? Um, well, as you guys know, the walleye fishery is outstanding right now. And um, we expect this to go on actually for the next 10 years um, because we've seen above average hatches and um, and actually record hatches since 2015. And over the past two years, our anglers have seen some of the highest catch rates that we've seen um, in the time series, basically, of our data set since the 1970s. So because of these new hatches coming on, we're expecting fishing to get even better over the next couple of years. So uh, just to give you an idea, the current population estimate for walleye is 116 million fish in Lake Erie. And the prediction for next year is potentially another 30 or more million fish. So we've got a really terrific walleye population. Um, unfortunately, with yellow perch, the outlook's a little bit different. Um, we're seeing some below average abundance across the lake. Um, and what we see is, is things aren't too bad in the Western Basin. They're actually pretty good in the Western Basin as far as the abundance of fish. Um, but our catch rates are really very low right now. And so we do expect this year to be another, um, you know, some low catch rates, especially in the central part of the lake. And what we attribute the, the central basin to um, the, the lower catch rates is um, the, the 
adult population is a little bit lower there. And we haven't seen great catches in the past few years since 2014. So that's kind of, you know, what's going on with yellow perch. Um, so, uh, as far as the other species, everything's looking good. Um, we're seeing good, um, angler, uh, harvest of uh, smallmouth bass and, uh, largemouth bass and white bass. So everything else is looking, looking really good right now for, for our typical game fish species. You know, you know, one of the questions I, I have on this, Amory, and, and, um, I kind of mentioned this to you earlier, you know, I do quite a bit of steelhead fishing on the, the tribs there in Ohio, and I've often wondered you know, with all the, the walleye in Lake Erie, and you mentioned how many millions of walleye there are in Lake Erie, I've wondered with all those toothy critters out there, and, you know, they stock the smolts in the spring of the year in Ohio in our tributaries, and then they get flushed out into Lake Erie here in May. I just wonder what the survival rate is, and I know that's kind of hard to put a finger on. Now, I don't think it's affected the steelhead fishery right now. We're still having great steelhead fishing, but I also wonder just – is that an issue that you guys are aware of and you're keeping an eye on too? Yeah, it's definitely something that we keep an eye on. So we don't really have any um, data that suggests that um, the walleye are eating a, a large number of these steelhead that are getting stocked. We don't have a lot of diet information from this time of the year. Um, but th it is possible that they are eating them. Um, Typically for walleye, the preferred prey items are um, shiners and smelt and, and gizzard shad. So uh, these are a little bit bigger than uh, they'd normally be eating. Uh, but, yeah, there, there is potential that they can be eating them. Um, but like you were saying, the adult population of uh, steelhead, like the steelhead fishery, has been great the last several years. So um, we, we think that you know there's, there might be some impact, but not a major impact on, on the steelhead fishery. Okay, very good. Well, that's fantastic that we got the walleye numbers that we have now, and it sounds like we're going to have. But could you clue us in on how we got there? What were the factors that, that got them there? Sure. Um, well, it's, it's funny because like what we used to see 20 years ago, we'd see really strong catches in the western basin. And we attributed that mostly to the spawning stocks or the population of adults that were spawning in the Maumee and the Sandusky rivers. And then in recent years, so I work on a, a trawler and we do gill netting. Uh, I personally work in the central part of the lake, so from Huron to Conneaut. And um, what we're seeing in the past maybe five or six or seven years is more walleye uh, age zero and age ones, and we're seeing them in the central basin now. So we're seeing more um, spawning and, and productivity, production, in, in the central part of the lake, and our colleagues in the eastern part in New York are seeing the same thing. So um, it, what makes a good hatch, what we think makes a good hatch, um, is uh, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's similar to what Mark Wiley was saying on your last podcast about turkey poults. That um, you know, consistency is good. So in the spring, a nice, warm, gradual warming pattern um, in temperature, and not a lot of wind and wave activity. So not a lot of storm. That's just like an even keel kind of spring. Is really what what we think is good for walleye. Um, the way the wind and the waves aren't crushing the eggs or, or um, turning up too much for the for the younger fish 
And so that's that's what we think is good for walleye. Plus, some precipitation events are good, and um, and then as the as the little fish start to grow, um, having the currents take them out into the nursery areas in the lake that um, have these ideal food sources and temperatures for them. So there's this combination of environmental events that sort of needs to happen for these for these guys. And what we think is in the last maybe five, six, seven years uh, that we're starting to see those good combination of events happening around the lake instead of just maybe in the western portion of the lake. Okay. All right. Well, you know, one thing we've we've read about and seen is that the the Great Lakes and, and Erie included have had some historic high water levels. Is that uh, anything? Any comment on that? Is that a good thing or relative? Yeah. So there, I've always um, I've heard heard since I started. You know, high water is, is good for um, for recruitment or hatches of fish, and um, a couple. Uh, pieces of literature have talked about, um, you know, if you think about a, a, a reef where fish are spawning, and it tends to be in kind of shallower water. So if you have uh, a higher water level, now that reef is in slightly deeper water, and that kind of um, it eliminates some of the effect of the wind and wave activity I was talking about. So it might act as sort of a protective mechanism for those little eggs and, and larvae that are hatching on reefs. Um, and another way to think about it is along the shoreline where you've got lots of trees and rocks, all kinds of really great structure. Um, when you have a high water year, all of that great structure is now submerged a little bit. And so fish now have access to that additional structure. And you guys know that's some of the best places to fish in the weeds. It also provides good protection for the little fish. Um, so a lot of, in a lot of ways, we see high water as being um, somewhat of an advantage for a, of some different species. So it's like a habitat enhancement then for the lake. Yeah, in some ways. I, I haven't really heard many um, negatives about high water issues. Hey, Anne-Marie, back to the um, one of the questions I had on the spawning, where the question is coming is and the, the rivers, the tribute, major tributaries, the Sandusky River being one. And now that they removed the dams there, one dam there, I should say, and it opened up a whole nother section of river to the fish. Have you guys noticed a, an influx of fish going into the river there using that habitat for spawning too, not just the reefs? Yeah, and actually, so the, the fish have always used the rivers. Um, the Bami and Sandusky are traditionally really great rivers for um, for walleye spawning. So when, when you hear about that spring fishery down west, um, you'll see the guys just packed and lined up in the Maumee and Sandusky rivers, um, you know, fishing for walleye. So that's kind of been... Um, a, a traditional fishery there for a long time too, in addition to the reef fishery. But like you're saying, with the removal of the Ballville Dam, there are now um, miles of additional habitat that have opened up. And so um, there's some preliminary information that the fish are moving past where that, that dam was and moving up into that habitat. Um, but some of that data is really um, really preliminary right now. I, I don't know, you know, amounts of fish or what new fish are moving in. But that's something that we are uh, monitoring really closely. Yeah, as far as the tributaries go, too, and I've also heard this now, too, that uh, friends of mine in Canada are telling me that they're, and I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, it is Lake Erie, and it's the Grand River in Ontario, not the, yes. not the Grand River here in Ohio, but the Grand River in Ontario. They're telling me that they have some natural re walleye reproduction there, too, and yes. I, I, they do. Isn't that interesting? 
Yeah, and that that's that's kind of an interesting stock. Um, you know, they they stay there um, and, and not too far outside that river for a lot of the year. Where when you think about our um, our mommy in the West Basin, they'll move down to the central and even eastern parts of the lake to seek out cooler water and to go into the deeper water. And so our fish can, be, you know, the West Basin fish from Ohio can be moving hundreds of miles. Where what we see with those Grand River um, Ontario fish. Is is that they're really not moving far from that eastern basin area um, just outside the Grand River. Genetically, are they the same walleye? Yeah, I, genetically, they're going to be very similar. They're, they're the same species, sorry. <clears throat> sorry. Um, but they, um, they're they just a, basically a stock or like a group of fish that kind of, um, you know, they've kind of, I want to say, evolved differently and, and behave differently from from other places in the lake and we see that um you know uh, there's some in the grand river ohio too there's a, a stock there and um so we're trying to monitor that population now and then um there's different reefs off of um, new york and different rivers off of new york where they're seeing some spawning and so uh, that's work that we are trying to um, get more information about. So we, we're doing some genetic work to, to really tell, like, um, you know, genetically, are they different? Um, well, but they're is, all still going to be the same species of walleye. That is really interesting. Yeah, what's yeah, their deal? <laughs> different animals. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, one other thing we wanted to know about, uh, we know that for a few years now, we've seen harmful algae blooms in the Western Basin, and it seems like they happen every summer. Uh, has that had an effect on the fish populations? Yeah, I guess, so we can look at it directly and indirectly. And I guess if we look at it directly, um, just one you know thing I'd like to point out is that every year we take samples from the fillets of the fish, um, uh, you know, a subset of the fish, and we send them to the Ohio Department of Health and they test the fillets for that toxin that's associated with the harmful algal blooms. So we want to make sure that, you know, the anglers are safe in consuming these, um, these fillets. And so, you know, I'm happy to report that the results continue to indicate that they're safe to eat. And, uh, you know, as long as we're you know, rinsing the fish fillets, removing all the skin and the, and the fat, and uh, not eating raw <laughs> walleye or anything. Right, right. And you know, not consuming the organs or anything. So, um, yeah. So, luckily, um, you know, there are harmful algal blooms, but we're not seeing it in the fillets of the fish. So that's that's one important thing. Um, also, there's some really neat work. I don't know if you get a chance to look it up. Dr. Suzanne Gray at at Ohio State. Um, she's done. She's been doing some work looking at um, just the environmental conditions, uh, comparing clear water to water that's got a lot of sediment to water that has a lot of algae in it. And she compares um, basically the vision of walleye in those different conditions. And, and she sees that there's, there's a pretty strong impact um, on walleye's ability to see um, when there's a lot of algae in the water. So that can affect the way that they hunt for food. Um, but she's also doing some really neat stuff. She works with the charter captains in the West Basin. And um, she's uh, not just looking at uh, like the types of food that they're eating, but how successful the charter guys are with um, different lure colors under different environmental conditions. So I don't have any of her results with me, but if we get a chance to look some of that up, I'll send it along to you because there's, there's some neat stuff that they're doing. Well, that'd be interesting to hear. Because, yeah. boy, some of those blooms, I, I imagine it's like swimming through a bowl of soup. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty bad. And then, like, there is the indirect aspect of the algal bloom. So, as that stuff starts to die and it sinks to the bottom, as the algae's dying, um, there, there's you know bacteria at the bottom that start breaking it down. And the, in the central basin, uh, when you start to get that um, the Stratif- thermal stratification. So when there's the, um, you know, the warm water on the top and the cold water in the bottom, uh, the algae start to use up a lot of the oxygen in the bottom, and basically that's what's creating what we talk about um, being the dead zone out in the middle of the central basin. So the algae, in some ways, um, you know, attrib- is attributed to a worse uh, dead zone that year, and because it doesn't have a lot of uh, oxygen in it, um, a lot of different fish species have to avoid that low oxygen area so sometimes they'll hover up above that low oxygen maybe 10 or 15 feet off the bottom or sometimes they have to travel near shore of it so they'll go into maybe 35 or 45 feet of water and so you know there's there's a pretty strong impact of that dead zone um, on different fish species where how they behave now as far as that algae bloom goes in a dead zone is there is there something that um, affects that dead zone as far as making it bigger or smaller? Is it related to um, the heavy rain events during the summer months and, and water temperature or vice versa? Is, it, is there another combination that affects that? Yeah, well, any year, so the precipit- more precipitation we have, um, there tend to be more harmful algal blooms. Like uh, spring precipitation events tend to lead to, you know, bigger blooms and more harmful blooms. So that that would be one thing that would make the dead zone worse in a year, I would say. And then warmer temperatures also kind of bump up that productivity. So, so that makes it worse. Um, and then it can, it's interesting because it tends to, like the, that stratification and know the the dead zone basically starts to really set up in August and most of the time we say it it only lasts until September but in the year where we don't have those strong fall winds come through and churn up the lake so that it mixes everything back up and it mixes up the you know the low oxygen water with the high oxygen water above Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. so once that that turnover happens um then everything's mixed up. But in a year that's really calm and that, that storm events doesn't come through in the fall, um, the, the dead zone can hold on for much longer. So we've actually had to postpone surveys um, in the past couple of falls where we normally would start at the end of September, but now we've had to start almost early November just waiting for that um, dead zone to break up. Wow. Um, so, so that's another event that can affect it. Yeah, that's deep into the year. No kidding. Jeez. Yeah. All right. Um, our, our next one, uh, we know that the zebra mussels and the gobies, uh, invasive species, have been around for a long time. Um, we know they brought some significant changes to the lake and, and the whole Great Lakes. Uh, can you give us a, a verdict on, on what those did? Is it, have they been a, a bad, super bad thing or is there any good? Uh, what can you tell us about those two? Yeah, sure. Um, so with the zebra mussels, um, what they're doing is filtering out the water, filtering algae and zooplankton. Plankton. And um, so as they're filtering, it, it gave us much clearer looking water, which in a lot of ways seemed to be good. But it was taking a lot of that important plankton out of the water, um, which was kind of a bad thing for different, um, you know, small, like uh, 
the young the young walleye that we're talking about or young perch that we're talking about um, they would eat those different types of plankton so um, the, you know there was a big concern for a while that they were filtering so much of the important stuff out of the water um, but luckily in the last several years we've seen a decline in the zebra mussel populations so that's good um, and then with gobies yeah we were really concerned at first um, because gobies are egg predators and there was some research coming out of Ohio State that showed that gobies, um, you know, they were going into smallmouth nests and eating the eggs. Um, so we were concerned that that was going to hurt the smallmouth population. But what we've seen with a lot of invasive species, um, so zebra mussels and gobies both, and, and a lot of other invasives that we see, once they get it, they start to get established in the lake. Um, so the first year, there's very few, and then the population booms over the first like five or six years it just goes kind of crazy mm -hmm. and we get really worried you know that this is going to get out of control and then like with the gobies after about four or five years we started seeing them showing up in the smallmouth diets and so um it, which was really great um so that it was almost like it took a few years for the smallmouth to realize that they were going to be able to eat these things <laughs> and that it was a, it was a good prey source for them yeah they so, were good eating they found yeah out. <laughs> so we have colleagues in new york that showed that the health of their smallmouth population actually improved because of gobies unbelievable um, so yeah, so there can be positive, you know, impacts. The one thing we have to look at is just, you know, they might be eating more, but are they as nutritious? And so that's why we also okay. have to look at the, the health of, the, of the, the predator that's eating them just to make sure. And so most of them seem to be, um, most of our fish seem to be in really good health too. Interesting. Now, as far as the zebra mussels go, you mentioned that the, their population is either stable or dropped slightly. Yeah, no, we do. It's, um, it's funny, so... We'll see. We'll see fragments of zebra mussels in yellow perch diets. I don't know if you've ever caught a yellow perch. <laughs> I don't know if this is kind of gross, but when you, if it kind of pukes up something that looks like craft macaroni and cheese, yes, yes, <laughs> that's usually that's usually dead zebra mussels. Um, so sometimes though we'll be eating them. I don't think it's really a preferred prey item for them. I think it's you know they're they're going along the bottom trying to eat midges and other things that they really like to eat or prefer to eat, or maybe they get some you know zebra mussels on the side i don't think it's a preferred prey item but we do see them in their diets um sheephead we've seen them in, in their diets too so there's a lot of different species that uh we do see zebra mussels gobies um do eat zebra mussels huh. too interesting yeah, good yeah <laughs> good, good for them <laughs> whatever take whatever we need to get rid of them. that's right good for them yeah i'm glad the smallmouth figured out eating those gobies yeah too. for yeah. sure <laughs> um all right, here here's one for you. Is is there anything else that that scares you? Uh, I know those are two invaders that we've come to to live with, but I know there are others. Um, I'm I'm thinking Asian carp or uh, or not just an invasive, but what what what's the the bad thing? Nutrients or or climate or pollution? But give us your your uh, your take on that. Okay. I've 
I guess we had, we had talked about maybe we'll just talk quickly about Asian carp. Um, I don't think they scare me because I think um, we're in a, a pretty good position right now. So um, there are four species of Asian carp that we typically talk about. Uh, the silver and the black carp we've never captured in Lake Erie, and the silver are those ones that jump and hit people in the head on the river. Um, okay. And then there's big head carp. Uh, we've only ever caught three in the late '90s and never seen them since. So most of those are not a big deal. Um, and then the grass carp are the ones that um, we've been catching. I don't know if you've seen some of our um, our efforts where we go out and. Uh, we work with New York and Michigan and um, Ontario and, and the federal groups to go out and electrofish for these things and, and try to find where they are. Uh, we're trying to to prevent them from being established. So these are in Lake Erie and um, in the, you know there's some of the Sandusky River, some of the Cuyahoga River. Um, so um, they're the ones that eat a, a lot of the vegetation. So I wouldn't say they're they're really a concern um, because I think uh, they've been here for for a couple decades I'd say and really not uh, you know kind of gone out of control like these other invasive populations that we've seen so luckily I, I think we're, we're in a good place with that and we keep working towards um, preventing them from from coming into the other species from coming into Lake Erie um, I guess our, our biggest battle is still the excess nutrients coming from farms and uh, urban runoff and the algal blooms like that's something that we don't really have you know a good we know what the sources are but we don't have a good um, a handle on controlling them yet. So um, I, one thing we had talked about beforehand is uh, Governor DeWine had set aside uh, the H2 Ohio funds, which is a huge project. He's very concerned about the water quality in Lake Erie. And so that funding that was set aside um, has been uh, set aside to reduce phosphorus and create wetlands um, to address failing septic systems and prevent lead contamination. So um, that's really important money that um, they've already started to, to do work on some of those projects. And um, I think that's really going to be, um, you know, our hope for the future uh, as far as, as improving water quality, especially with the algal blooms. Very good. That, that'll take a while, but got to start somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, is there anything else as far as evasive species that we need to be concerned with that's on your radar at all, Anne-Marie? I guess we, um, so a lot of times when we talk about invasives, we think about, you know, fish, like fin fish type things. And um, what we've seen mostly um, in the past several years that doesn't get a lot of press is different zooplankton um, that come in through ballast water of different ships. So um, you might hear about the spiny water flea or the bloody red shrimp. Um, right. Those are they're real small, um, you know, invertebrates that um, we've been kind of keeping an eye on indirectly we, like like with the other invasives we're now seeing them in the diets of our predators so um, the spiny water flea is actually one of the um, big um, you know prey items that yellow perch consume so um, those are the types of things that that we see a lot in the lab, but they really don't get a lot of press. And um, so it's something we keep our eyes on that, you know, again, it's making sure that, um, you know, the yellow perch are eating these things. It's kind of, uh, you know, making sure that it's not a, it's as nutritious as a prey item as what they would normally be eating. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And you're right. We don't hear about things like that. You hear about the fish. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. 
Um, as far as Lake Erie goes, is there anything else as far as in the future plans of the lake uh, that you could share with us, uh, other programs or projects that are going on? Yeah, the one I think that your listeners would really think was the most interesting probably is the GLaDOS project. So it's G-L-A-T-O-S. It stands for Great Lakes uh, Acoustic Telemetry Observation System. So this is a federally funded project, and the, the funding source is the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, those GLRI monies. And it's the money is sort of routed through um, – you know, the Great Lakes Fishery Commission works with this GLaDOS group. And what is essentially, it's a, it's a large, really large-scale Great Lakes-wide tagging project. And um, so these are really neat tags because um, they're, depending on the predator that you're tagging, or depending on the fish that you're tagging, rather, um, they're usually the size of a double-A battery or so, and they're surgically implanted in the fish. So we, you know, kind of knock the fish out temporarily with a, an electro, you know, electroshock, and then um, surgically implant the tag, and then wait for it to recover, and then release the fish. And these these tags can last between one to five years. And so, you know, our previous tagging studies that we've done, um, you basically you know where you tagged the fish point A, and then you know where you recaptured the fish one or two or three years later, point B. So you only know that those two points in time, where now we've got all these 450 receivers all over the bottom of the lake, and this little tag is pinging out, um, you know, it's, it's facing the signal that's being picked up on this 450 receivers around the lake. So now we know where it's traveling the entire time uh, it's out with that tag. So there's some really neat information coming out of it. Um, understanding better, like, movement um, between jurisdictions of different species. Um, so, you know, how much walleye are moving between Canada and the U.S.? Um, or how deep walleye are swimming within the water column. Um, things like bass movements. Um, there's all kinds of different really interesting stuff that's coming out of it. So that's one project I think uh, if your listeners have a second, you know, go to that website and check it out. It's really neat. Yeah, it's interesting. I did go on that site uh, preparing for this interview, and, and one of the things that caught my eye, I looked at the, I know it's not related to Lake Erie, but the Lake St. Clair, they did a study on muskie there. And yeah. one of the fish there, I, I, they named him. I don't remember what they called, what his name was. <laughs> but anyway, he went from Lake St. Clair, through, went through the spawning process. And from there, early summer, moved all the way into Lake Erie, down the um, Detroit River, into Lake, uh, Lake Erie. And then uh, during the summer, it ended up all the way over in the eastern basin near Buffalo. <laughs> yeah. And then the fish turned around and came right back to Lake St. Clair the following spring and was back in Lake St. Clair to spawn the following spring. So I know that's just one example of, of one of the interesting things there. Um, but there's I didn't realize, and Don and I were talking before the interview here, we had no idea the amount of work that was being done on Lake Erie with all the studies. Um, it's unbelievable the work you guys are doing. Yeah, and that, that project is really neat because um, it's such a collaborative effort. Like, um, basically, um, it would be impossible for one group to, to buy all these 450 receivers. Um, so basically, you know, different groups are working around the lake and they monitor certain receivers and they're detecting tags uh, that dif different people have put in the lake. So they combine everything at once and then you get the information back from your fish that you tagged. So it's, it's really provides you 
you know, a thousand times the information that you could if you, you were trying to run some project like this alone. So, yeah, yeah it, it's it's pretty neat. And, I'm you know, I'm laughing at your musky traveling all over the place. Cause those are the types of the things that we learn that, um, you know, we, we saw a walleye. Um, spawn in the Western Basin, and with three within three weeks, he was in New York. You just kind of beeline. No kidding. New York and you, you're going, what are they thinking? <laughs> well, that's that's uh, flying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's really neat stuff. Well, Anne Marie, we certainly appreciate the time you spent with us today. Uh, we're happy to hear that the lake sounds like it's in pretty good shape, and and we appreciate the work work you do to keep it that way. So, again, thanks a lot for your time and. Uh, we look forward to talking in the future. Well, thanks so much, you guys. I really enjoyed talking with you, too. Yep, no problem, Anne-Marie. Thank you again. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Well, that was some great information from Anne-Marie. We're happy to have her to give us that report that was uh, glowing for the most part. Lake Erie's not without challenges, as she indicated, but by and large, it's a great success story and a good news story at this particular point in time. So we hope you can use that and take something from that. We we got all we could get out of that period of time, but we could have gone on for four hours. We only touched on a couple of species. Yeah. Uh, there are 30 species in the lake. Yeah. Uh, so yep. um, there's more to, more to learn there if you care to do that on your own. But uh, now we need to talk a little bit about the fish and the walleye. So uh, let's get to that. Okay, our next guest is Travis Hartman. And as we mentioned earlier, he is the Lake Erie Program Administrator. But what we didn't mention was that he's also a competitive walleye angler. So Travis is going to take us through some of the details that you need to have to be successful on Lake Erie to catch those walleyes. So let's jump right into the interview with Travis. Thank you for taking time out to talk to us. Uh, but now we're ready to get right to the fishing part of this. So I'm uh, going to start rifling some questions at you here. Great. All right. The first one. The limits of fish that can be taken by anglers, they sometimes change uh, in the rules year to year. And we were curious as to how those are established in any given year. That's a good question, and uh, I, I get that a lot from anglers. We're, we're very fortunate to uh, work through the Great Lake Fishery Commission and collaborate with all the agencies around the lake. So with Lake Erie being a big lake, an international lake, you know, there are two countries, four states, and a province involved. And uh, fortunately, everyone has uh, chosen to work together through the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. We uh, do a lot of uh, great science and model the walleye and perch populations. And then each year, we come to consensus on a safe level of harvest. So every year, we have a, a walleye total allowable catch, or tack as we call it. It's an agreed to by consensus by all five jurisdictions, uh, safe level of harvest. And then that gets broken up by jurisdiction. And then we as Ohio use that safe level of harvest and we, we set that as our ceiling. We want to set our limits to stay within that safe level of harvest for that year. And then we design our daily limits to, to meet those harvest levels. And one of my predecessors had a, a really uh, great idea and we, we designed tables. So in Ohio administ administrative code, we have a walleye daily limit table and a yellow perch daily limit table. And based on our quota level that year, uh, you look at the table, 
find what our quota is on that table and it directly tells you what our bag limit will be for that season. So that's why it can change year to year because we want to account for changing populations and higher or lower safe levels of harvest. And we want our daily limits to re- reflect that situation. Now, how about what is the current limit right now, Travis, on Ohio waters? So if, if you've been out on Lake Erie at all, you know that we're in a really unique time and have a, a lot of walleye right now. So we're at our, our top quota level on the daily limit table. It's a six daily bag limit. So okay. each day uh, you can go out on Lake Erie and, and keep your six walleye. and It'll be that way uh, at least through next uh, end of April for sure. Okay, very good. All right. Now, I know there's some commercial fishing that takes place on Erie. How, how does that factor into the recipe you're talking about? So when we're doing the interagency population modeling and and safe harvest level setting, all of the commercial fisheries around the lake, and and most people don't realize there are commercial fisheries in every jurisdiction. So all four states have some level of commercial fishing. And of course, most people are aware that up in Ontario, there's a, a larger commercial industry, a gillnet industry. In the U.S., all of the states limit commercial fishing to either uh, yellow perch, so New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania all allow some level of yellow perch commercial fishing. And actually in Michigan, uh, they don't allow perch or walleye. Um, So, you know, up north is perch and walleye both. Here in the state, it's primarily perch, no walleye, unless you're in Michigan where you can't commercially harvest either. But they all feed data into these population models. So each jurisdiction sets commercial quotas based on that annual process. We allocate a specific amount of uh, fish to the commercial fishery. We, you know, enforce and uh, assess all of the harvest. And then each year we feed all the commercial harvest data into those models. So it's kind of an ongoing process of assigning quota to the industries and then assessing the industries and reporting that harvest. That's interesting. I I, I just didn't know that. I I thought it was a Canada thing, uh, uh, but that's good to know. I didn't realize it was so involved, too. (laughs) A lot of of things going in there. There's no doubt that the the largest industry, the most harvest, is up in Ontario. They they don't have the amount of sport fishing we have here in the States, and they do assign a a high proportion of their annual quota to the commercial industry. So, you know, if you're eating Lake Erie walleye, it clearly came out of an Ontario fishery because it's not legal in the States. And if you're eating perch, it could have come out of four of the five jurisdictions. But the, the biggest fisheries up north, and ours are a little lower scale, smaller scale. So they get their share. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's right. Hey, let's let's talk a little bit about the fishing now, uh, Travis. And you're kind of a, a unique guy. And what I mean by that is not only do you have your role and responsibility there at the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, but you also, also uh, fished competitively over the years and are an angler pursuing walleye on the lake uh, quite often. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do you have your boat set up? And, and, uh, and so you can share that with our listeners. How exactly are you going about it? Yeah, I, I've, I've fished Lake Erie since a young age, and then once I got up here and, and was fortunate to get my position up here, you know, it was a dream for me because I, I really wanted to end up on Lake Erie. And it, as popular as the, the really big boats are, and, and there's there are a lot of advantages to having a big boat on Lake Erie, but because I like to trailer around and, and fish in other places and because I was fishing tournaments that, you know, that mean launching out of a lot of different places. I went with a smaller boat. I have a, a fiberglass Lund. It's uh, just a little under 21 feet. It's 20 feet, nine inches. 
and uh, I have it set up for planer board trolling. I, I run the inline, uh, the small planer boards, one on each rod. And most of what I do when I'm walleye fishing is uh, primarily either crankbait or worm harness fishing with inline planer boards. And I'm I'm using a small gas kicker motor to power the boat. I'm using a, a bow-mounted electric motor to steer the boat. And uh, I'll tell you what, the technology available in any size boat is incredible right now. And we're, we're truly spoiled between the, the good walleye fishing and the technology we have to find them and catch them. Yeah, that's the truth. The technology now with the electronics, it's its unbelievable, the stuff that uh, that's available to us. It yeah. really is. With the down scan and side scan and all the mapping tools, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, we can have a pretty good toolbox now. Yeah. Yep, seriously. Well, I'll tell you what, no matter how much you use them, if you're not constantly learning and, and trying new features and, and trying different things, you're missing out because even once you get it, you get comfortable with it. There's so much you can dive into and, and do differently than you have in the past. That it's, it's worth exploring. It is. You know, before we dive into to getting a little the more uh, detail on the techniques you're using, we are allowed to use three rods now, correct, in, on Lake Erie, at least on the Ohio side, correct? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was previously two rods per person, and that was in place for a long time. But over the past, I don't know, six or eight, even ten years, you know, we've been getting more and more requests where anglers were asking for, for three rods per person. And it, it was a social request that we uh, evaluated and, and looked at biologically. And at the end of the day, we're managing through daily limits and minimum size limits. So how many rods you're using to catch fish uh, isn't going to impact how many fish you're allowed to keep. So we, we looked at it, and we, we didn't see any reason for biological concern, and it, it got approved. So now uh, something the anglers wanted is, is a new rule as of this January 1. So it's totally legal right now to have three rods per person. Okay, and is that just in the state of Ohio? So it, it varies by jurisdiction on Lake Erie. Um, and actually, I should specify, in the state of Ohio, it's only in the Lake Erie Sport Fishing District and the Ohio River. So if you're fishing okay. in Ohio Reservoir, it is still two rods per angler. And we, we kind of view this as an evaluation. We're going to see how it, how it goes on Lake Erie. We're going to see how it, what the results are on the Ohio River. And, and we'll, uh, you know, potentially consider the rest of the state at some point down the road. But on Lake Erie, uh, depending which jurisdiction you're, is, you're in, it is different in each jurisdiction. So Michigan has been three for a while. Ontario is still two, and uh, honestly, I have to look up Pennsylvania and New York. I'm not sure where they are right now, but it, you got to know uh, which jurisdiction you're in and what their rules are. Okay, yeah, that's 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 good. That's great. Um, back to the boat now. Uh, let, let's talk about how you're set up here. Okay, let's get into the nitty gritty. And this is what a lot of the listeners wanted us to really dig into a little bit was the actual uh, technique and everything. So, and I, I was interested to hear that you're you're using a boat similar to the one I have. Um, and you're not using a big 24-foot or a 30-foot boat to fish Lake Erie. not saying that you have to have a boat that size, of course. And I like the idea that you're versatile and you're able to move around the lake. But what is your go-to uh, method? You mentioned uh, inline planers and snap weights. What are you looking for? Are you structure fishing, looking for bait, pods of bait, and walleye suspended? What are, exactly are you looking for? You know, that, that's a good question, and it's very seasonal for me. So I, I guess as a point of reference – you know, I, I work out of the Sandusky office over here in the Western Basin, and of course I do a lot of uh, early fishing uh, farther west and around the island. So a lot of my points of reference are a little different than deep central basin water. But um, 
I, I kind of group the the year up into a couple categories. I, I like to troll crankbaits early, so when I say early, I'm talking either winter without ice or the second the ice comes off in February or March. That's early. But I'm trolling, yeah. trolling crankbaits. I'm looking for uh, on the sonar. I'm looking for groups of bait fish. I'm looking for you know big hooks that look like walleye underneath them, and I'm trolling crankbaits high. And I I don't know if there's anything that's more fun than catching big walleye on crankbaits on short leads and uh man spring is spring is just great for that that is that's a lot of fun it really is once you know once we get into warmer water and the fish start migrating and and you know what they're doing changes after they're done spawning then i'm going to slow down um and and use worm harnesses and i'm when i say slow i'm talking 1.0 mile per hour 1.1 1.2 i'm I'm going pretty slow because what i'm doing is I'm finding groups of fish, and I'm just really working them over with harnesses slow. And uh, you know, depending on the month and, and water temp, that can be open water. But there's also a period where that structure fishing is a whole lot of fun, and that's main lake shoreline, island shoreline, um, reef structure uh, contours. But when those bigger fish get on that that contour on on the structure, it, it can be a lot of fun to troll for them slow with harnesses. Yeah, I'll bet. Now, back to the when you're talking crankbaits. Now, you mentioned that you have a smaller motor, gas motor, six horse. Is that what you're using uh, to troll the crankbaits or using your uh, electric trolling motor? Or how are you getting the speed down is what my, my question is, to, that at one or one and a half miles an hour. How are you doing that? Yeah, it is really speed dependent. And, and a lot of times what I'll do, especially when I'm trolling slow, so if it's immediately ice out, you're talking – 37, 8, 9 degrees water, you know, your your 1.0 can be fast on some of those. Yeah, things. yeah. But but what I'll do is, I'll, especially at, at those really slow times, I'll start out with my bow mount electric only. Okay. I, I don't even trim the gas kicker motor down. I'm just putting down the bow mount electric. Okay. And if I can maintain what, what seems like the right speed, if that's 1.0, 1.1, 1.2, if I can maintain that at less than 50% power on my bow mount, then that's all I'm going to use. If I control under 50% power, I control all day with the electric only. I can make less sound. I can have better steering control, and that's all I'll use. But if it's one of those days where maybe I'm in some current or maybe there's a little bit of wind and I'm not able to maintain the speed with my bow mount, I have to turn it up to 60 70% to get that speed, mm-hmm. then I'm going to put the gas kicker down, turn that on, and put it in gear to push the boat, and I'll just simply steer with the bow mount electric at a lower speed. Okay. I was wondering how you were getting the boat control there because that's my biggest problem uh, for me is to getting that boat control at that low speed, especially when you're dealing with wind. It's uh, it's tough. It's tough to control that. And so you're not using wind socks or anything like that to, to help control the speed at all? No? You know, those, those are on uh, fairly specific days. So if it, And I, I'll admit, uh, the longer I'm up here and, and every time I add a, a year to my age, uh, I'm probably going out on fewer and fewer bad, like windy, terrible weather days. Yeah, I understand that. I get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with but you on that one. Said, uh, if, if the current wind, et cetera, if conditions are making it so hard to control speed that I'm really spending my time fighting the mower motors and and trying to get that perfect speed, then I will throw out the, the trolling bags. And 
I say trolling bags, not drift socks, because there's a difference. There are smaller drift socks that a lot of bass guys use, and yeah, they throw them out, they mm-hmm. control their drift, kind of slow their drifting speed. Mm-hmm. But even with the 20-foot boat, if you're trolling on Lake Erie and you truly want to have speed control, you've got to do a little bit of internet research and find the right bags that are trolling bags for your size boat and you want to put one off each side because if you if you only put one off one side it, it really impacts your steering oh you'd be going in circles you go crazy out there and you know there i have found scenarios where one bag makes sense i i like to troll around the islands uh, late may early june and there are days where maybe it's a 15 or 20 mile per hour wind but you can get on an island shoreline in the lee of the wind and be in calm water the problem is the wind's still working on you. So I, I've had days where I was in calm water, but to have good steerage control, I had to put a trolling bag on the wind blowing side to keep that side from blowing with the wind. Interesting. Yeah, because boat control, um, and you know this better than I do as far as walleye fishing goes, that's the key. One of the keys, I think, is, is getting that boat under control, the speed. Well, it is absolutely, and it, it comes down to – I mean, if, there's probably not a single day that I go out that I know what speed I need to achieve. But once you figure it out, you, you got to be able to keep it there. So, you know, maybe you're going a speed, a certain speed and you speed up to make a turn and get hit. Well, there's a, there's a clue. I got to speed up. Or maybe you, you, you pull back the speed cause you're fighting a fish and all of a sudden you get two or three more hits when you slow down yeah. and you realize, wow, I, I've got to adjust my speed. But the, the key is, figuring that speed out, but then being able to maintain it and still have control of the boat. Okay, that's good. I'd I, sorry to get on a rant there. I just, um, I had a couple <laughs> questions, but back to the your seasonal approach. Now, you mentioned you're doing crankbaits in the spring and you go uh, into the summer months, you'll go into the, the worm harnesses. Now in the fall, and I know that they do really well um, over on the eastern basin where I'm at, um, central eastern basin with crankbaits in the fall. Are you doing the same thing uh, in the fall too on that western basin? Is that something you go to? Yeah, absolutely. Because what you when you think about what these fish are doing, so the, the walleye spawn in the spring, they migrate to deeper, colder water in the summer, and they're they're over in the central and even out of Ohio in the, the true eastern basin, following smelt around all summer. Then they come back in the fall, and and they're absolutely coming back to eat gizzard chat. We get big schools of uh, young year gizzard chat in the fall, and and that can be anywhere really from from Cleveland all the way to Toledo as the fish come back and they're they're eating gizzard shad they're looking for schools of shad they're following them around and that's when it's it's a great time to put crankbaits in a lot of times it's it's 10 to 20 feet down regardless of the water depth that you're in okay and then at at times when it gets really late and we're, we're talking now thanksgiving time and you mm-hmm. got cold water if you get one of those sunny days where that top layer of water warms up because you had some sun on a calm lake mm-hmm. those gizzard chat will just pile into that warm water up near the surface and the walleye chase right after them so mm-hmm. it can be fishing six or eight feet down even over 40 or 50 feet of water once you find the right bait and the right mm-hmm. walleye have have those shad always been an important forage for the walleyes there you know, they have, but when you think about uh, Lake Erie and the, the different habitats and, and the, the temperature differences from west to east, we're at the, the very northern edge of the Gizzard Chats range. So when you have hot summers and extended summers, uh, we have really good conditions for shad and have a lot of them. 
if we go through cooler summers and maybe some really hard winters like we had in 2014 and 2015, that will knock the number of them down because we're at the northern end of the range and they'll experience uh, thermal shock and, and mortality. So it, it varies year to year. You know, some years we're kind of heavy on gizzard shad because it's been warmer. Other colder, worse winter years were lower on gizzard shad. But they, uh, they're definitely an important part of the forage base and, and, and no, no, more time, no more important time than the fall for sure. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, one more question on your, your fishing setup. You, you've told us about the, the techniques you use and, and some of the baits. Um, any Anything to say about the rod setup that you might use there? You know, that, that really depends on how you choose to fish. So in, in my example, I'm using the inline planer boards. And, I, of course, I'm, I'm putting them in uh, two broad holders. And I like, I like an eight or eight and a half foot rod. And it, it has to have a fair amount of backbone because, you know, you get up to two, two and a half, even three miles per hour pulling those big boards, or excuse me, the inline boards. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a lot of stress on the individual rods. So I like my rods to be around eight and a half feet, have a, a fairly stiff backbone, but I do like a soft tip. And that's important because once you unclip that planer board and you have 60, 80, 100 feet of line out, it's just you and that fish. And if that rod's not very forgiving. Uh, you'll lose fish that weren't hooked well. So it's kind of a give and take. You need enough backbone to, to hold the planer board at, at higher speeds, but you need a soft tip to bite the fish. And uh, line choice uh, will impact that. If you're using braided line, you definitely need a soft rod. You need forgiveness. But if you're using monofilament line, or even fluorocarbon for that matter, the line itself is a little more forgiving. So that all can kind of play into your rod selection and what specific action you want on your rods. Then obviously you're using line counters too, correct? Yeah. Line, yeah. line yeah. counters are probably the simplest tool we have. Yep. We don't think much about because they've been around for so long. Yeah. But without them, most of our trolling techniques are, are really a reach. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. Now, as far as the line goes to traps, that's one of the things I've fooled around with over the years. I've been using, you know, the super braids. And um, I've had problem with that with the boards, you know, slipping on the boards. But the thing I've noticed to have had to go with, I know, I don't, maybe this is the same situation you found too. The fluorocarbon leaders, I've had to tie a fluorocarbon leader onto that uh, super braid simply because I've had more success doing that. Is that common practice or is there something else that I should be doing that's <laughs> a little easier? You know, that, that's a good open ended question because there are a lot of answers to that. And I, so when I was uh, fishing tournaments uh, regularly and, and fishing a handful of circuits, I, I did use braided line a lot. And uh, I, I fished a lot of tournaments with, with my dad. I fished some tournaments with some of my friends. But I always, it was always me and one other person. And I was very confident in both of our abilities to reel fish. And, you know, you, with braided line, you can't horse fish. You can't push it. You know, there, there's a lot of stress on that line because there's no give. Right. And it's easy to pull hooks out. Mm -hmm. So when I when I knew who was going to be in the boat with me and when we were fishing tournaments, I was good with braided line because I trusted both people reeling and, and we kind of knew how to handle it. Right. As, as I fished tournaments less and, and fished, you know, with a more uh, diverse audience, we'll say, of, uh, <laughs> of, of fishing friends, you know, it, you don't always know how much experience the person this fishing with you has, and, and maybe they haven't even trolled before. Monofilament is totally the way to go in that case because monofilament is so forgiving. As long as you keep some pressure 
on the rod and keep the rod tip up a little monofilament covers a lot of mistakes a, a new new person to trolling might make so i i kind of base it on on what you're doing what your intent is you know if you're if you're trying to tr- troll crankbaits really deep and and you don't want to mess with snap weights there's no better way than fine diameter braid you can get crankbaits way deeper with fine diameter braid right right that being said, you got to be careful fighting the fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I've, I've had that problem. I had my, I had a laugh when you said a diverse crowd in the boat. Because I had my grandson with me sometimes, and you know he gets all excited because there's a big fish on there, and he he's lost some uh, some big fish by, and that like you said that Power Pro that I'm using, uh, does, there's no give at all. It's there's no. nothing, and it's uh, just trying to explain it to him. And I've lost my share too because you get excited about a nice fish or something. But you know I'm going to try that monofilament now. What are you using a fluorocarbon mono, or are you using a mono, then tying a fluorocarbon leader to that? You know, I've, I've done a lot of different things, but what I've ended up settling on, there's a couple important things. And, you know, most of us that fish here a lot, we use some version of the uh, what's commonly known as a trolling Bible, uh, the precision angling crankbait curves. Yes, yes. So, you know, you can get it. Now it's an app. It's really convenient. You, you get the app, and you can either buy individual lures or, or pay for the whole subscription but those dive curves are uh, based on a line that's 0.013 diameter and that's, that's so important I've, i memorized it 15 years ago and it, it sticks because it doesn't matter what what monofilament line actually it doesn't matter what line you use if it's 0.013 diameter your dive curve will match the dive curve uh, in the app so I, I settled on a monofilament. I, it's Sunline, but you know that's not real important. But it's a, it's the brand is Sunline. It's a monofilament. It's actually sixteen pound test, okay. which is much higher than the ten pound test in the book. But the diameter is the same. Okay, it's a, a fine diameter sixteen pound test is the same 0.013 as the book. And I, you know, I if I fished really clean, super clear water, like, like you guys have a lot of times most yeah. of the year. Yeah. I, I probably would either be using, uh, I'm using the green sunline, but that green sunline, uh, not the bright green, it's more of a, a dark green. Yeah. It matches our watercolor over here, so I, mm-hmm. I don't worry about it. If I was in really clear water, I'd probably either choose a clear line or I'd, I'd consider going to, to a full spool of fluorocarbon. That comes back to what suits you. You know, it's fluorocarbon sinks. It doesn't float. They're trade-offs right. when you start thinking about that. Um, I I settled in on a monofilament that I like that's 16-pound test and matches the diameter of the book. And if I go somewhere that's really clear water, I'm going to put a leader on, but I don't encounter that a whole lot other than like up at Peely, maybe uh, north of our islands up in Ontario. Yeah. All right. Well, you've mentioned about dragging the baits. Um could you give us a little little bit on what crankbaits, maybe what colors and sizes your, are your go-tos? Yeah, that's, a, that's another good question. You know, a lot of the really popular Lake Erie crankbaits are that longer minnow style. And it's funny, back in 2003 when I moved up here full-time and got to start fishing more, you know, we, we really only used reef runners. And they're a, a great local crankbait. They catch a lot of walleye and they catch big walleye. Mm-hmm. And you fast forward to now, and the options are almost overwhelming. <laughs> but what, what you really want is that, and I, 
I guess I should know this, but I, I think the reef runners are around six inches, maybe just under six inches. You want to crank bait in that length category. So whether it's a bandit, a reef runner, a deep husky jerk, a perfect 10, a top 20, all those crankbaits, you're going to find versions that are around a, a six inch option. Okay. And really, we, you know, you could go crazy with color, you know, mm -hmm. custom painting shops or painting colors for us. There's the stock options are impressive with a lot of them, but, but don't worry about that. You know, think about what Lake Erie walleye are eating. Pick some white base baits that look like shad or shiners. Pick some bright color baits that maybe work in, in dirty water a little better. Pick some chrome baits that are good on sunny days. But, man, I, I try not to get myself too bogged down. And does this bait have one or two dots? Is it light green or dark green? Is it <laughs> – you could drive yourself crazy with the options. But, uh uh, right now, the, the really popular baits, of course, are, are bandits. Bandits, uh, yeah. Uh, the flicker minnows are popular. Mm -hmm. the, the perfect tens are the shallower diving baits that are really good in the spring and fall. Still love reef runners. And, and if you want something different than the bigger minnow-style bait, the, the shad baits are good. So like rip shads and shad wraps and flicker uh, shads. Uh, there is a time of year in the late summer when the gizzard shad are still small that uh, shad-shaped baits are really good for a crankbait. Yep, that's crazy. You know, that's funny. Um, I know guys that are making their own crankbaits now. Um, I got quite a few friends that are doing that, and uh, they're selling quite a few. It's amazing how it's got like a little cottage industry now <laughs> with this walleye fishing. It, it plays right to us, doesn't it? You yeah, know, I, yeah. I've always heard people say that uh, that lures catch anglers, not fish, and and there's some truth to that. Although if that bait doesn't catch fish, we're not going to buy any more of it. But if uh, if it doesn't look attractive to us, we're probably not going to spend the money on it or use it. And and what's really important is having confidence in a bait and sticking with it and keeping it in the water. I'll every day I'll, I'll take the right fish and and the right depth compared to worrying about the specific color of the lure or even the model of the lure right i, I want to put baits in front of feeding fish and that's more important than anything that's a great point yeah all right well we know erie's a is a paradise for the big water boaters it sounds like you might be on the the light end of what i call the big water boater with your boat um I wanted to ask you about what would you say to somebody who's in that under 20-foot uh, range for a boat, somebody who's got a boat set up for inland waters, um, you know, are, are there opportunities where they can do that safely? And, um, and what, what might they do to find some success uh, safely there for the walleye fishing? Well, absolutely. I, I think way too many times, and I'll, I'll – I'll even put myself in this category with a 20-foot boat. You know, we get caught up thinking we have to make a long run, thinking we have to go where where we heard the reports were from yesterday, you know, not not having confidence if we don't run 5, 6, or even 10 miles from the ramp. And, you know, we run over so many fish some days to get to somewhere we think has fish. So there, there are absolutely near-shore opportunities, short-run opportunities. I I will say, you know, if you're if you're new to Lake Erie, if you have a, a good boat but it's small and you don't know Lake Erie, you know, please work with someone that does. You know, get get familiar with the with the marine forecast, the NOAA forecast, the windsurf. You know, use multiple forecast options. Make sure you're going out on the right weather day. 
and uh, you know pay attention to wind direction and where you're going out of. But as long as uh, you're comfortable, you've picked a good weather day. You know, there, there's a lot of nearshore opportunities, and seasonally they can be incredible. You know, early spring, if your central basin and, and walleye are migrating to you after the spawn. You know, there's some really good fishing in 20, 30, 40 feet of water near shore as that first wave of migrators uh, heads east down the lake. And that can stay good for quite a while, depending on how uh, how hot it gets, what the water temperature does. Then, you know, as it gets warmer, it's going to get a little tougher near shore. But I think too many near shore fishermen maybe don't pay attention to structure. You know, I, I kind of grew up, so to speak, on Erie as a younger angler fishing uh, island contours and, and reefs and structure and you can absolutely do that in central basin shoreline areas you know we'll get your contour map and and find start, uh, sharp drop-offs or find bends in the contour line where it makes a point or use your side scan and find areas that have rocks that are isolated away from from anything else and i guarantee you all year you you can catch walleye along the shoreline and less than 40 feet of water if you put your time in and find some areas and you know there are times of the year that you're going to catch steelhead and smallmouth bass and, and you're going to catch your fair share of channel catfish and drum but there are plenty of nearshore fishing opportunities that that all of us myself included run over too many days to, to get out to the, the hot bite that may or may not be there yep that, that's a great point i think because uh, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody too i always think i have to run out you know you know, five miles from shore to get into the fish. I probably passed over how many limits to get there. It's um, so this year I'm going to take your advice. I think Don and I are going to try working structure closer to shore. Um, so we won't be beat up either. If it does get rough or closer to shore to get in, but great opportunity. Uh, yeah. And there's definitely safety in that. Um, you know, in a small boat on the right day, you can go a long way and you can be safe if, if the weather's right. But if the weather's questionable or maybe there's some storms coming, uh, closer you can stay to ports in your best interest, and you might be surprised how many fish you can catch. Yeah, and fuel's cheap now, but they're not giving it away yet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> not yet, yeah. <laughs> not yet. Well, very good, Travis. We want to thank you again uh, for your time. We know you're busy, and uh, you know, keep the walleye fishing great for us up there. We really appreciate everything you and your team's doing. Uh, to make that a great fishery. So thanks you again for your time. Yeah, thanks, Travis, and hope you have a good year up there. Well, th thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. And, uh, you know, we, we're in a really unique time here. We have a lot of walleye. And if you're interested in coming up and uh, chasing walleye around on Lake Erie, there's no better time. So thanks for having me. No problem. Great. Thank you, Travis. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Travis. We'd like to take a few seconds here just to thank Travis and Anne Marie again for their generous time in helping us put together this podcast. We certainly couldn't have done it without them. Don, a couple takeaways for me uh, that were really interesting. First was boat control. And it's one of the things I always struggle with when I'm on Lake Erie trying to fish for walleye there is I'm constantly dealing with the wind and the weather changing every two minutes. And it was interesting to hear how Travis deals with that, the different methods he uses to help get his boat at that ideal speed so he can make contact with those walleyes. It was uh, really interesting to hear how um, he puts that together. Um, the other thing was for me, and I didn't know this, was the partnership that the state of Ohio has forged with the other Great Lakes states in the province of Ontario in dealing with you know, the supporting of the Great Lakes and trying to keep them maintained and the quality fisheries that they are. 
I think that's very encouraging. I think we're heading in the right direction with the Great Lakes, and I think there's uh, a lot of good news yet to come. Right. We're, we're glad we have Lake Erie, but we have to understand that it's part of a big system, and, and it is a shared system between states and also Canada, Canada as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's good to see that cooperation can exist and does exist and uh, has success as it yeah. has with Lake Erie. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, too, that Anne-Marie mentioned in her interview, she talked about the GLaDOS uh, project, and it stands for the Great Lakes Wide Acoustic Telemetry Tagging Project. We're going to put the link to that project on our Facebook page. It's uh, 120 Outdoors Facebook page. I'll put the link on there, not only to the podcast, but also to this GLaDOS study. And Don and I spent some time on this before we did the interviews, and it's really interesting. It talks about all the studies across the Great Lakes that they're doing you know, uh, what the study is about, what the uh, priorities are for the study. And they have some results there to date um, with some of the studies. So if you have time, I, I would really recommend you, you taking a look at that. Um, yeah. And if you have even more time, I would recommend something else. We've talked a whole bunch about fishing and the fish, but Erie has such a rich history and a huge importance to so many things. There's more to learn there if you want to go do some searching you know, there are so many important population centers uh, and industrial cities that surround the lake. Huge impact on uh, the economies of all those states and the surrounding area. There's a rich history of conflict that is tied to the formation of, of our country. Uh, there's a Native American history there. It's a major shipping and transportation uh, vehicle. It has a, some bad history that's worth knowing about the pollution that went on there, too. Yep. And um, in other wildlife-centered things, it is a, a, one of the flyways for migratory birds uh, yep. and a major nesting area. So the waterfowl uh, benefit greatly from that big body of water. So much more to learn for you and for us. Yes, very good. All right, Chris, you have a parting shot for us? Yeah, we, we just uh, got done talking about Lake Erie, and we encourage everybody to go out there and buy a fishing license, but we want to give you a little um, extra boost here, okay? We have some free fishing uh, weekends coming up here on our local states. For example, in the state of Ohio, our free fishing weekend is Father's Day weekend, the 20th and 21st. Um, in Pennsylvania, it's the 4th of July, and then in the state of New York, it's the 27th and 28th of June. So there's some opportunities there to get out and enjoy Lake Erie and um, hopefully get into some walleye. Don, what's your parting shot? Well, we've encouraged people to get out there and try Lake Erie, and we've encouraged them to even try it in a small boat. But don't do it off the cuff. Uh, know what you're doing. Uh, a couple things about Erie are very unforgiving, and one of those is the weather and the waves. you got to check the weather and the waves before you attempt it. You don't get to go every day. Some days the waves don't let you go. And if you go, you got to let somebody know a float plan. Uh, it can be done safely, but uh, there are some dangers associated with the big water. So you should have a float plan and you should also have somebody with you. I wouldn't advise going to Lake Erie alone. In addition, not that a GPS and a radio aren't bad for any body of water. They're critical for Lake Erie for navigation and communication and keeping up with that weather that I mentioned. And to cover yourself with requirements and 
and safety. Of course, you always need PFDs in the boat. Don't go minimum here. Have good ones when you go on Lake Erie. And also, you need to have some signal flares and a distress flag. Those are requirements for not just Lake Erie uh, and the Great Lakes, uh, the Ohio River. Same rules would apply. So uh, give it a try, but do it safely and know what you're doing. Yep, yep very good. Um, one other thing, too, we, I mentioned earlier about checking out our Facebook page there. Uh, we encourage you to do that. You can leave a message on our Facebook page if you have any questions. That's one way you can get hold of Don and I. The other way is through Anchor. If you're listening uh, to our podcast through Anchor, um, you can also use, there's a way you can leave us a message, a voice message. So we have had a few questions, but if you have any other questions, you can uh, reach us, either, as I mentioned, either through the Facebook page or through the Anchor app and leave us a message and we'll get back to you and maybe even use your question on our next podcast. That's it for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, get outdoors and do something in your 120. 120 Outdoors is a monthly podcast focusing on hunting and fishing opportunities within 120 miles of your residence. We will share stories and interview interesting people. Find us on social media and be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment on any podcast app. Thank you.